1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to uh, Emma Gledhill. Emma Gledhill uh, recently published a book with Manchester University Press called uh, Taking Travel Home, The Souvenir Culture of British Women Tourists, 1750-1830. Emma Gledhill is a historian and artist based currently based in Melbourne. Emma, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Morteza. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you. Uh, Before starting talking about the book, can you please tell us a little about yourself, how you became interested in history and more particularly in uh, history of women's travel and what was the story of the inception of this book?
0: Um, Yeah, so I'm a historian and um, watercolour artist based in Melbourne um, and my area of history is social and cultural history Um, And I'm specifically interested in women's history and in travel um, and accessing new dimensions of the female experience through souvenir culture. Um, I've also, on a personal level, just had my first baby. Um, He's going to be five months old tomorrow. Um, So I could also say that he's my second baby because my first baby was my book, um, (laughs) which some people call their book baby. Um, So, yeah, it's my first monograph. Um, and this book stems from my dissertation research at Monash University um, and then five more years of new research and writing since then. Um, so there's a good decade of work um, behind this book. Um, I originally came to this topic through the Grand Tour. Uh, back in 2010, for a subject called Imagining Europe, I wrote a research essay on the Grand Tour's role in the development of British the British Empire and the idea of Europe. My focus was on classicism and elite masculinity. Um, But I wondered at the time, what were women doing? How were they involved in this practice? Um, And coming from a visual arts background, I was also interested in the artworks and antiquities that the Grand Tourists were bringing home from Italy. Um, Eventually I returned to Monash to do a PhD on this topic. um, And I discovered that a lot of art historians had written about Grand Tour collecting and elite British masculinity. Um, and there had also been quite a bit written on women travel writers by feminist and literary historians, but nothing had been written on what women were bringing back from their travels and how they engaged with grand tour collecting as a social and cultural practice. My supervisor, Professor David garyock suggested that the travel souvenir might provide a useful framework. It was then that I started to look into the theory of the souvenir through the works of Walter Benjamin and Susan Stewart, um, and I found that in the late 18th century, the term souvenir was actually first used in the English language. And it was also at this time that a souvenir market started to develop. And this was just when women were starting to travel in greater numbers and to publish their travels. And that's when I really thought, hmm, I think I've you know really got something here. Uh, To look at women travellers and the development of souvenir culture, I then from Australia poured through all the published and digitised travel accounts and letters that I could access from here, um, looking for any references that the women made to the objects they were taking home. Um, Later on, I travelled to the UK to complete archival research there, reading the women's original manuscript journals and letters from over two centuries ago and viewing some of the original souvenirs where they existed. Um, Through this research, along with examining household catalogues of contents and accounts of guests, I carefully and painstakingly was able to find out the meanings that the women travellers of the 18th century brought to the objects they took home. Um, And I found that it was these early travellers who formed a souvenir culture. And that, by standing in for their extraordinary travel s- experiences, the souvenirs played an important role in allowing women to reach new possibilities in their lives once they returned home, intellectually, socially, and politically.
1: That that, uh, that sounds very exciting. When I, I when I did my PhD thesis myself, I work on ecofeminism, and um, my and I had to read a little bit about women's uh accounts of you know the lands they had visited but anyway i was working mainly with fiction because i did literature anyway not history but it was but the topic of women's travel was quite fascinating to me and that's the reason that i picked up this book because you had approached it from a different angle it's it's i came it came to know um the grantor which as you mentioned was a very masculine endeavor uh but then you talk about women and the objects or so souvenirs they bring home and again how they use that to to kind of express their agency in the 18th century but maybe before talking about the idea of agency and how it, it was highlighted through the souvenirs it would be helpful for our listeners to know a little bit about female travel because uh, it was, as you mentioned it was becoming more common in the 18th century but in general how was female travel viewed in the 18th century or even maybe before that if you happen to know about that
0: Yeah, so it was really only in the second half of the 18th century that women began to travel in large numbers, um, and women's travel became more normalised. And I'm talking about British women here because my history is focused on them and is quite um, Eurocentric. Um, So prior to that, travel had been more about exploration, emigration, religious pilgrimage, trade or education. Um, In the late 18th century, travel started to really transform into what today we'd call tourism, um, which is travel where the primary purpose is pleasure and you're undertaking a more circular journey and, and returning home. Um, So, tourism became more of a thing because of the rise of Britain as an empire and the prosperity it enjoyed. With rapid industrialisation that spurred this on, there were great improvements in transportation and printing. Um, All of this wealth and advancement meant that travel for pleasure was more possible and therefore women could become more involved. So, the rise of the woman traveller really coincided with the rise of what we might term today the professional and middle classes. Um, We see this from the number of accounts written and published by women. Prior to 1770, only two travelogues were published by women. Um, One of these was Lady Mary Mary Wortley Montagu's embassy letters, um, which some of the listeners may have heard of before due to her introduction of the smallpox um, vaccine to um, Britain and Western Europe. Um, and after this point, you see a dramatic increase in women publishing their travels um, with over 20 travelogues published between 1770 and 1800 and many more letters and journals that were circulated amongst friends and family.
1: And uh, again, to, for the benefit of the listeners, what was Grand Tour? Can you explain a little bit about the custom of Grand Tour?
0: Uh, yes, yeah, Certainly um so the grand tour was really the pervading travel culture of britain's social elite for the whole of the 18th century and also for a few decades before and after that um a grand tour in its narrowest sense was conceived as a rite of passage for noble and gentry men by which they traveled to europe um, which was then known as the continent Um, and this was following their schooling and before they entered adult society so it was a sort of gap here for the 18th century, um, but one that generally went for several years and was more educational perhaps than a gap here today, although just as rowdy and pleasure-filled, I think. Um, the ideal grand tourist was expected to travel with a tutor um, who was then known as a bear leader and spend time in Paris to perfect his manners and conversation before travelling to Italy and above all Rome to experience the ruins and art of classical civilizations that had been the subject of his humanist education. Um, this was also about ridding the man of the two markers of adolescence, um, lack of control over his emotions and bachelorhood. So it was on the grand tour that he could drink, gamble, have sexual exploits with opera singers and the like while safely out of sight and out of mind before returning home to be an upstanding husband and leader. Um, I can't stress enough how important the grand tour was to the British Empire um, because it was really a final rite of passage that set the seal on the noble and gentry man's leadership by allowing him to learn from the ancient Greek and Roman empires on which it modelled itself. The boy would return home a worldly, gen- or the first exhaustive English dictionary shows this. Um, And he said, a man who has not been to Italy is always conscious of an inferiority from his not having seen what it is is expected a man should see. All our religion, almost all our law, almost all our arts, almost all that sets us above the savages has come to us from the shores of the Mediterranean. Um, So essentially it was the grand tour that gave the British men their right to rule.
1: And... uh... Is, is, is as i guess a lot of people have picked up women were kind of excluded from this practice and uh I, I think it was actually i read somewhere here that there was this art historian in melbourne um she's she's big on tiktok but she went on a grand tour. I mean, she visited all those places that, a uh, follower on Instagram, I don't remember her name, unfortunately, but she talks about art history most of the time and she talks about different paintings. But anyway, how how was how were women excluded and how was travel in general experienced differently by men and women?
0: Yeah, I'll have to check out this um, art historian. Yeah,
1: I'll send you the link to wax. works. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Um... So, yeah, um, women were excluded from this practice on both a physical and a conceptual level. Um, So firstly, under the laws of coverture, um, they did not have the independent material wealth of men um, and their families would not have been as willing to make an investment to send them on a perilous journey to Europe, at least in the earlier part of the century when um, travel was, you know, more difficult and that got a bit better later in the century. Um, women also didn't get to have the carefree adolescence that men had. Um, they were expected to marry young, bear children, and run a household, not to be traveling around. Um, if they did get the opportunity to undertake a grand tour, women rarely traveled alone and they could not visit any everywhere that the men could. Um, So it was rare for a woman to travel without a male companion, whether this was her husband, father, brother and an entourage. Um, They couldn't undertake rougher road journeys and they could not access artworks that were displayed in monasteries or churches. Um, So the grand tourist Hester Piozzi encountered this issue when she visited St George's Church in Venice in 1785. And here she missed out on seeing Paul Veronese's famous painting, um, the marriage of Canna in Galilee and um, she said this was because the picture was kept in a refractory belonging to the friars um, and in her journal she wrote um, everyone said it was her own fault for she might have put on men's clothes and seen it whenever she pleased. Um, on a conceptual the women could not experience antiquity in the way that the men did because they didn't have the same classical education They were generally schooled at home by tutors and while they learned French and Italian um, Latin and Greek were rarely taught to women and they were not educated in surveying or mathematics. Um, The subject matter of much of antiquity was nude sculptures, and these were considered quite unseemly for a woman to view. Um, All of this meant that they often deferred to the learning of their husbands, fathers or brothers when it came to antiquity. Um, To top it off, once they returned home, the women couldn't build upon their travel experiences by becoming members of institutions that were created around the Grand Tour, um, such as the Society of the Dilettante or the Royal
1: Society. Uh, And and again, it's quite interesting to know how women appropriate the different aspects of this Grand Tour through the objects and souvenirs they brought home and the way they engage with these objects and somewhere. And then you go on to talk about how they establish uh, the culture of salons, which is which was, I guess, more or less a French thing there. So it would be good if you could talk about how they uh, appropriated the different aspects of this grant or this tradition through the object and souvenirs. And uh, uh, the idea of this podcast is actually to give listeners a broad understanding or general idea of the book. Uh, in the book, you talk about Lady Anna Miller and also Hester uh, Piozzi, if I'm pronouncing the names correctly, and how they establish mm-hmm. salons. Uh, I, I know it's going to be a big topic, but again, I'll leave it up to you to choose one or two, or both of them, maybe to talk about how they went about to establish this culture of uh, salons in, in England. Yes, and maybe, sorry, like- it would be good if mm-hmm. we tell them what is a salon anyway. What is that culture like, the literary culture of a salon?
0: So for any listeners who are not aware, um, the 18th century salon, um, yeah, stemmed from France um, and it's a French um, word meaning reception room. Um, so it was a regular mixed gathering of men and women um, that was held within one's home to discuss literature, politics and philosophy. Um, The hostess um, resided over the salon, and she had great power in selecting guests and moderating the topics of conversation. Um, And for, you know, very esteemed salons, um, it was quite competitive um, to get an invitation, you know, to attend. Um, So salon culture was very polite, it was cosmopolitan um, and it was also an educational outlet for women um, and it led to the spread of enlightenment ideas and thought. Um, So there's been a fair bit of written about salons and debate about the role that they played, um, I guess, in women's education and in the enlightenment. Um, So that's something, you know, listeners can read up on. Um, So I found that there had been quite a bit written about salons as actual physical, or not much written about salons as actual physical spaces. What had been written about them was more about the ideas that spread through them. Um, But in my research, I found that often um, British women set them up following um, their grand tours or following travel, and that these were actual physical spaces where they would display their um, souvenirs um, and display what they'd learned during their travels um so yeah lady anna miller and hester piozzi are two examples of women who set up salons following their grand tours um so i can tell you a bit about about them if you're interested
1: yeah for sure um,
0: <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) Um, so I might start with Lady Anna Miller because she was the first to undertake her tour a decade before Hester Piozzi um, in the 1770s. Um, So if you've travelled to Bath and visited Bath Abbey, you may have spotted a memorial to Lady Anna Miller there. On the north wall of the sanctuary, um, there's a large relief of two muses in flowing gowns, decorating a vase with myrtle wreaths, and below the vase is a portrait of a woman and the following dedication. Devoted stone amidst the wrecks of time, uninjured bear thy miller's spotless name, the virtues of her youth and ripened prime, the tender thought the enduring record claim. Um, Despite this effort at memorialisation by Lady Anna Miller's husband, um, she was a subject of a lot of mockery during her life and now is um, quite little remembered. Um, So Anna was not born a lady. She was the daughter of a London customs official, um, but she inherited a considerable fortune from her grandfather, um, who was a member of the Irish House of Commons and a privy councillor. Um, her husband John was proclaimed an Irish baronet for his services during the Seven Years' War and Anna's title accompanied this honour. In 1770, when she was 31, Anna and her husband travelled to Italy um, and it was Anna's publication of her letters um, after this tour and her collection of souvenirs that gave her the cultural, the social clout to establish a popular literary salon to complete, uh, compete with the ones um, that were more established in London. Um, So five years after her grand tour, Anna published her um, travel account in the form of letters to her mother. Um, At the time, publishing was both unusual and unseemly for a woman, and so she did so anonymously. Um, In her letters, Anna comes across as an exuberant, eccentric, overbearing and um, covetous uh, tourist. So at the Vatican Library, she attempts to steal a sheet of linen, which readily catches fire but does not consume thereby, um, but is prevented by her guide who secured it from any further attempts. Um, Anna later notes it is probably formed of the asbestos, so (laughs) I think it's quite good she didn't um, steal it. Um, and she was not afraid to venture her opinion of the artists and shops that she visited um, and disagree with male authored accounts she'd read. Um, so in Venice, she regrets that the celebrated Rialto does not answer the idea I'd formed of it, um, and she's not she's sorry to find so frequent occasion to criticise the popular tour guide um, La Land. Um, but she says that one is under a kind of necessity to expose such gross mistakes. He observes upon and commends modern statues and bustos for antiques and vice versa. Um, So such personal anecdotes and opinions make for a fun read and offer a window into this woman's personality. Following her return home, Anna established a literary salon at her newly renovated villa, Bath Easton. Um, she held soirees once a fortnight that attracted people above her station, including provincial dent- gentry such as the Duchess of Northumberland, celebrated up and coming writers such as the novelist Frances Burney, Um, And she decorated the villa with her grand tour souvenirs um, and descriptions from her guests give us insight into her style. Um, Fanny Burney wrote, the room into which we were conducted was so much crowded, we could hardly make our way. Um, A Roman urn from Frascati, displayed in the bay window, greeted guests when they approached. Anna presented this as Old Tully's Vase, um, the nickname for Cicero, as though she was on first-name terms with him. Um, And guests placed poems composed around rhyming words or subjects like fashion, dancing or society into the vessel. Um, And then a gentleman would read them aloud, and the best were awarded with myrtle wreaths. This game, called Beau Reims, was adopted from France, while the idea of awarding myrtle wreaths was drawn from Rome's Academy of Arcadia. Um, So in, in a sense, these were also souvenirs from her travels that were put on display. Female guests showed off their inclusion in Anna's circle by pinning myrtle wreaths to their dresses when they attended Bath's mini balls. Um, And these soirees gave up-and-coming women writers a head start by providing them with a venue to share their writing and to receive feedback. From 1775 to 1781, over 200 of the poems from Anna's literary gatherings were published in four sell-out volumes and the proceeds went to Bath's pauper charity and hospital. Anna's new wealth and title, combined with her distinctly feminine commercial success and provincial locale, however, unsurprisingly opened her up to derision. Alas, the social commentator Horace Walpole wrote sarcastically in 1775, Mrs. Miller is returned a beauty, a genius, a sappho, a tenth muse, as romantic as Mademoiselle Scuddery and as sophisticated as Mrs. Vessey. Um, But it was Anna's Roman urn that attracted the greatest mockery, as seen in this poem that was published in The Gentleman's Magazine in 1778 called The Reef of Fashion. On a spruce pedestal of wedgewood ware, where motley forms and tawdry emblems glare, behold, she consecrates to cold applause a petrifaction worked into a vase. The vase of sentiment to this impart thy kindred coldness and congenial art. Here, as in humbler scenes from Cards and Gout, Miller convenes her literary rout. Um, So, although Anna's vase was a genuine souvenir from Italy, this poem equated it with Wedgwood Ware, an emerging brand of replicas of Roman urns for the middling class of people. The poem also indicated that Anna had fallen into the feminine trap of being seduced by superficial artifice of ornaments rather than understanding the true principles of classical form. This shows the challenge that Lady Anna Miller and other middling women like her travelling in the latter part of the 18th century made to the traditional Grand Tour. But perhaps the effort that the elite went to to mock her also suggests that she did make the impression that she sought. Uh, Hester Piozzi, on the other hand, was born into high society. She was the only child of John Um, Salisbury, who was a Welshman and the co-founder of the town Halifax in Nova Scotia. From her doting parents, she received an outstanding education, unusual for a woman of her time. She later recalled, although education was a word then unknown as applied to females, they had taught me to read and speak and think and translate from the French until I was half a prodigy. The fortunes from the Salisburys were low, however, and in 1763, at 22 years of age, Hester was wedded in a marriage of convenience to the wealthy London brewer Henry Thrale. From 1764 to 1778, she bore 12 children, with only four of them surviving to maturity, while her husband led a bachelor lifestyle. Um, So this has new meaning to me now having um, had one child. (laughs) I can't believe Hester having 12 12 of them. (laughs) Um, Although unhappy in her marriage as the hostess of Streatham Park, um, London, Hester revelled in forming a blue stocking salon around the celebrated writer Samuel Johnson, who I mentioned earlier um, of the dictionary uh, fame. It was once Henry, Th- uh, Henry Thrale died in 1781, however, that Hester gained the independent wealth to follow her own ambitions and interests to the full. Um, so in 1784, after selling her late husband's brewery, Hester married Gabriel, um, Gabrielle Piozzi. This second marriage was a huge scandal as he was her daughter's music teacher and an Italian Catholic to boot. Samuel Johnson's death in the same year, who it was generally assumed Hester would marry, led her daughters and the Blue Stocking Circle to shun her. Mrs. Thrale's imprudent marriage shortened Samuel Johnson's life, wrote Elizabeth Montague, the unofficial leader of the Blue Stockings. In her diary, Hester lamented the Circle's ill treatment of her and her resentment towards them. Um, and she regretted that this would make it difficult for her to ever live happily in England anymore. Um, In the face of this social exclusion, the couple set out on a four-year grand tour from 1784 to 1787. When she returned home, Hester, unlike Anna, published an account of her travels um, that was not in the form of letters. Um, Prior to Hester's publication, um, the grand tour accounts published by men were largely itinerary-based, while those couple that were published by women took the form of personal correspondence. Hester went against both of these styles, um, and she wrote, for the book, I have not thrown my thoughts into the form of private letters, because a work of which truth is the best recommendation should not, above all others, begin with a lie. Um, So she was sort of saying that this form of letters was a convention um, and that she wasn't going to follow that convention. Instead, um, she would tell the truth. Um, Instead, Hester chose to write her account as a series of diary entry style observations and reflections about her experiences. And this is a style that we're very familiar with today, um, but at the time it was very new and controversial. Um, so, Hester was determined to position herself as authentically Welsh Italian, and her choice of souvenirs reflected this. During her stay in Rome, Hester wrote a letter to her eldest daughter that showcased her adoption of contemporary Italian fashions. I was looking at myself the other day, and I thought I would tell you what a motley creature I was become, she wrote. For my riding habit was bought in Rome, I recollected, my hat and shirt in Naples, my shoes in Padua, my stockings in Brescia, my ruffles in Genoa, one of my petticoats at Milan, and the rest of my dress in England. Um, And this really shows um, something about women grand tourists um, and uh, shopping. So. Um, consistently uh, there's a trend with female grand tourists, as there was at home, um, for them to talk a lot more about shopping as a pastime um, and an activity that was a key part of travel, um, whereas the men generally would just refer to shopping to itemise the things that they had bought um, of course, this is a generalisation and not always the case, but, um, you know, it is It is something um, that I noticed in my reading. Um, also, women tended to purchase um, smaller accoutrements and fashion accessories and things like that because um, they were more able to purchase these things um, due to the financial situation um, and because it suited their um you know, education, whereas the men would purchase um, more the large ticket, big ticket items, the big antiquities and um, statues and things like that. Um, So... Back to Hester Piozzi, Um, while male grand tour portraits, um, which have since been termed swagger portraits, um, typically demonstrated an appropriation of Rome's classical past through the male sitter's dramatic pose in front of ancient marbles and classical views, the portrait that Hester chose to return home with, like this written self-portrait, showcased her contemporary Italian and British fashion. Here, the black neck ribbon and stiffened silk gauze collar with the tippet crossed over the bosom a la Medici showed Piozzi's preference for the revivalist Renaissance style popular in the 1780s, while the striped pattern and large bows that cover her dress and puffed indoors cap were all the rage in London at the time. Like Anna, Hester built a new home in Wales with her husband that they named Brynbella, which is part Welsh and part Italian, meaning beautiful hill. And they decorated this house with their grand tour souvenirs. Um, And the house, like its name, was both Welsh and Italian in design. Um, The jewel identity that Hester created through her souvenirs served a social purpose by defending her marriage choice, Um, but it also served an intellectual one by allowing her to separate her travel experiences from those of the elite male Grand Tourists who had come before her um, and also the likes of those that she deemed beneath her, such as Lady Anna Miller. Um, By creating their own travel narratives around the objects they brought home, both of these women really contributed to a shift in the culture of the Grand tour. Uh, the, this
1: was a great overview of, of how these ladies uh, managed to establish this kind of a culture and uh milieu of this, this uh, culture of salons. Uh, another really fascinating part of the book is when you talk about, um, we know generally how women were excluded from scientific communities or if their scientific discoveries were kind of uh, downgraded or not really taken seriously. But you talk about how these, these travels enabled women to partake in the scientific community of the time. And uh you or you have an example you discussed the case of uh, Dorothy Richardson um uh, so it would be great if you could talk about that and also tell us maybe who Dorothy Richardson was and how they managed to we managed to get into scientific communities using their travels and souvenirs.
0: yeah, certainly um so in the 18th century uh, science wasn't really what it is today. Um, so, in fact, the term science was not actually coined until 1833, um, which is three years after the period in which my book is concerned. Um, so during the time I'm looking at, it was instead called natural philosophy. Um, and a science was, in a way, even looked down upon by the elite at this time because it was something that you did with your hands. It was a trade. Um, So the early scientists or the early natural philosophers wanted to promote their work in polite society and to make it accepted and popular. Um, And who did they enlist to do this? They actually enlisted women. Um, And it was more in the Victorian period with the institutionalisation of science that then women became excluded as they tried to um, legitimise it as a discipline. Um, But at this point, with women being the hostesses of salons and conversationalists, they were enlisted to spread science. Um, of course, though, their education was more in polite science for these purposes. Um, so they were still, you know, excluded in a way. Um, So I argue in the book that um, their education in polite science and the collecting of objects to demonstrate their knowledge of the natural and man-made world did provide an opening for women to take part in the social um, circulation of scientific knowledge at this time. Um, And this is something that's perhaps been overlooked by people trying to put um, our definitions of science back on the period today. Um, So in the book, I look at the knowledge-making narratives that women created while they were collecting objects on the continent and within the British Isles. And particularly, I focus on um, this woman, uh, Dorothy Richardson. Um, so Dorothy's grandfather, Richard Richardson, had trained at Oxford um, and Leyden to become a doctor. Um, he was an antiquarian and member of the Royal Society um, and close friend of the physician, naturalist and collector Hans Sloane. Um, So, Dorothy, because of this background, Dorothy was able to spend much of her life undertaking small tours of the English countryside to follow her own natural history and antiquarian pursuits. Um, She was unmarried and she was from a well-off and locally prominent academic family that valued intellectual endeavour. Um, Between her tours, she spent a great deal of time in the family library um, just outside of Bradford, which is regarded as one of the greatest 18th-century libraries. Uh, So from the ages of 13 to 52, Dorothy conducted her own travelling surveys throughout England. She was a painstaking observer and took delight in recording what she called minutes in situ of both the natural and urban landscape. Following her travels, Dorothy would write these up in neat handwriting, illustrate them and carefully cross-reference with well-researched appendices referencing the reader to other works of interest. This resulted in a series of five journals, um, which are very rich and detailed and thick, um, but they're written in minute handwriting and each volume is really only a little bit larger than my hand in size. So they're an odd combination, I guess, of um, scientific sort of study and, you know, the personal journal. Uh, Dorothy's journals, yeah, um, combined personal narrative with scientific study. Um, This quality is seen, for example, if we turn to the 1779 Yorkshire volume, which Dorothy wrote when she was 31. This volume contains a carefully measured pen and ink diagram of the Halifax gibbet which was a 16th century guillotine in West Yorkshire. Um, Next to it, she provides an exhaustive description of the criminal laws of this town, every measurement of the guillotine and its functionality, weighing up the relevance of different sources about it. She did the same with the specimens that she collected, including samples of a boy's hair and lead taken from a mine. Um, It's clear that Richardson also empirically observed and researched these natural specimens. She dried seaweed between pieces of flannels, opening every branch with the point of a needle, and recorded their properties and uses as ingredients in glass and soap. Yet despite conceiving herself as a member of the scientific community, Dorothy understood the difference between a polite pursuit of science that was acceptable for a woman like herself and the educated process of viewing and recording that was preserved for men. And she moved from the first to the second with caution. Um, She also knew that some areas of science were more accessible to women than others. Um, So this is revealed by an incident in 1785 um, when, at 37 years of age, she visited Dr. Hunter's famous medical museum in London. Um, So she wrote in her journal, in the morning we went to see Dr Hunter's museum in Windmill Street, but I am unable to give much account of this museum as we were joined by some of Dr Combe's learned friends and I had not the courage to take out my pocketbook to make minutes. I'm told the finest collection of anatomical preparations in the kingdom, perhaps the world, um, is housed here, but I am happy they were out of sight Um, So instead of recording her observations in front of learned gentlemen, Dorothy felt obliged to put her notebook away within the institutional space of the museum. She also restricted herself to viewing a very large collection of butterflies, moths and beetles. Um, and an extremely beautiful and valuable collection of shells rather than the anatomical specimens. During this period, the collection of minerals, fossils, plants and other samples was not a discrete scientific endeavour, but it was motivated and shaped by curiosity, sociability, taste and aesthetics. Um, And I guess what I'm trying to say in my book is that if we recognise this, rather than seeking to trace our modern understanding of science onto the period, it opens up a more complex image of scientific collecting and of women's role in this practice.
1: There is also another lady, Lady Elizabeth uh, Holland, that you discussed and also how her wealth enabled her to travel extensively and also become a patron of science and meets very well known scientists of the time. Who was who uh, Elizabeth Holland?
0: Um, yeah, so Lady Elizabeth Holland, I think, was one of the most powerful women of her time. Um, so she was born into immense slave-based wealth as the only child and universal heiress of Richard and Mary Vassal, um, who were the proprietors of three Jamaican sugar plantations. Um So it is unfortunate that this is where this woman's power, you know, came from, um, from this wealth that she inherited from the slave trade. Um, At the age of 15, she was married to a husband, 20 years her senior, who she despised. After birthing heirs in 1791, when she was 21, Elizabeth's husband allowed her to go on a grand tour. In 1795, she refused to return to England with him and would instead come back the following year with another man um, along with an illegitimate child. This man was Henry Richard Fox, um, the third Baron Holland um, and nephew of the great Whig leader Charles James Fox. Once she remarried, she then established the famous Holland House political salon. Um, While the Holland House political circle has been well studied, the Holland's collection of artworks, artefacts and specimens has not. The Holland's had an immense collection of natural history specimens that stemmed from Elizabeth's scientific collecting on her grand tour and the couple's imperial connections. During her grand tour, Elizabeth attended lectures by the Professor of Pharmaceutical Chemistry at Turin, introduced herself to the the Director of Natural History Museum in Florence, and she met the Chair of Natural History in Pavia, who she described as a man who has made some filthy experiments upon digestion. These encounters usually revolved around the exchange of specimens and provided her with the opportunity to ask questions about scientific um, topics that piqued her interest. In addition, like other women tourists, Elizabeth took specimens from the travel environment and recorded her own observations. For example, while Elizabeth had a classic Grand Tour portrait painted in front of Mount Vesuvius, she also brought home her own lava samples and carefully noted in her journal that the Torre del Greco's lava was of a peculiar texture, more charged with metallic particles than the other strata and that the density of the atmosphere marked the source of the lava. Once she returned home, Elizabeth used the need to expand her collection of specimens to further integrate herself into male scientific networks. She enlisted her friend, Lord Boringdon, um, surely an interesting man um, with that name, Um, to secure Cornish metals, the explorer Robert Gordon to obtain Swedish specimens, and James Smithson, the founder of the Smithsonian, to arrange her collection. Such contacts continued to multiply, forming an ever-increasing web of scholarly connection, as scientists asked Elizabeth to forward specimens onto their own esteemed acquaintances. For example, Smithson took the the liberty to include a small parcel for the German chemist Dr. Grusser in one of his cases to Lady Holland. Nicholas Thomas has noted in his study of the curiosities of Cook's specific voyages, it is sometimes argued that science justified imperial expansion, but it would seem closer to the mark that imperialism legitimised science. As the sole heiress to substantial slave-based wealth, Elizabeth was an immediate beneficiary of imperialism. She channelled much of that wealth into building a collection that demonstrated her mastery over the globe's natural resources. The development of this collection in turn supported the development of the careers of scientists like Smithson who developed and displayed her collection. This reveals the role that women Grand Tour um, collecting played in reinforcing science and imperialism.
1: Another great part of the book that I enjoyed was when you talked about how this whole culture of souvenir changed from being a give to a keepsake. And I'm interested to know how this change in the dynamics of souvenir helped women cement maybe their uh, their position or status in a male-dominated society of the time.
0: Yeah, certainly. So this is um getting to the sort of final part of my book. Mm. Um yeah, when I get into the sort of keepsake culture. Um, So as listeners would know, um, gifts um, have long been exchanged between travelling nobles, officials um, and dignitaries. Um, So they've long functioned as mementos of visits and uh, important occasions. Um, In the 18th century, male and female royals took part in this activity on their grand tours. For example, Georgiana um, Spencer, Duchess of Devonshire, received an antique stag's head um, from King Charles III when she visited the Royal Palace at Caeserta. Noble and gentry women also travelled with gifts in Britain and Europe. Um, It was common and even expected for women to exchange gifts with the women they met during their travels and to send gifts home to female family and friends. Um, Gifts made between the Elite women served to strengthen ties of horizontal friendship by confirming gentility and sustaining acquaintance. Um, Women's letters from the English spa town of Tunbridge Wells um, in the early to mid-18th century show that its famous wooden wares served as part of a larger regular exchange of trinkets and a form of relationship currency between women. Uh, for instance, in 1745, Lady Elizabeth Montague sent her friend, the Duchess of Portland, some Tunbridge ware. In the accompanying letter, she expressed her concern that, in your magnificence you will despise, but I desire it may be sent to your dairy, and their humbler thoughts will possess you, and churns of butter, prints and skimming dishes will appear of consequence." Um, So this is sort of showing how she took care to outline the status of the receiver of this gift. Uh, Gifts between daughters and mothers were also common and indicated a familial affection in the face of physical separation. Um, Another early traveller who wrote of sending a gift of Tunbridge Ware home was 27-year-old Mary Delaney, um, who you may have heard of for her flower um, artworks. Um, In 1727, Mary sent a case of Tunbridge ware to her sister Anne and her mother um, with the following note attached. There is a little Tunbridge jewel box which Mrs Tillier desires you to accept as a fairing and two Tunbridge voiders which I hope Mama will not think me saucy if I desire her to make use of. (laughs) The wooden wares would have been valued by Mary's mother and sister, both in and of themselves and as material proof of a daughter and sibling's kind thoughts. To the modern reader, well accustomed to social conventions around sending family and friends souvenirs from one's travels, this exchange seems pretty innocuous. Um, For an 18th-century woman, however, it reflected a modest level of feminine agency brought about by the ability to travel and to purchase gifts on one's travels. When business and commercial ventures took 18th-century husbands and fathers to towns, they would fulfil their wives' and daughters' commissions, rarely returning from such trips without an additional parcel of toys or novelties. Travelling to Tunbridge Wells allowed Mary to instead fulfil this male patronage role. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a shift towards the sentimentalization of the gift, the formal mode of gift giving by which women travellers exchanged objects representing local manufacture with female family and friends at home trans- transitioned into a more sentimental mode of gift giving by which the means of production mattered less than the object's role as a surrogate for a person. In my book, I trace this shift through the journals and letters of women travellers and how this interwove with the development of sentimental travel literature and the tourist industry for mass-produced knick-knacks. By the early 19th century, the emotional attachments that the givers and receivers formed with the objects became as fraught with consequence as the emotional attachments that they had with each other. This sentimentality of female friendship And the accompanying rise of the keepsake was informed by the emergence of sensibility as a genteel virtue in the 18th century. Sensibility indicated not only the capacity to feel as others did, but also to be easily moved and powerfully affected by surrounding objects. If one were particularly sensible, one might react emotionally to objects that appear insignificant to another. This reactivity was considered an indication of a person's ability to perceive something intellectually or emotionally stirring in the world around them. Expressing sentiment about a gifted object then became an easy way to show one's sensibility and by extension one's social status. An object that had passed from the hand of one friend to another then was a potent vehicle for feeling. Gifted gloves, fans, hats, locks of hair, snuff boxes and miniature portraits came to be seen as surrogates for individuals, that is, as keepsakes. And when these keepsakes were given before or after travel, they began to be referred to as souvenirs, um, and that is objects to remember from the French.
1: Um, I, well, we, we've talked about science, we've talked about arts, so I guess it's time to talk also about politics as well. <laughs> uh Again, in the book, you talk about how uh, Lady Elizabeth Holland and also other, another lady called Catherine Wilmot get involved in politics and even they meet um, well-renowned politicians of the time. Uh, Napoleon, in the case of uh, Lady Elizabeth Holland. Can you just briefly tell us again how these travelings enabled women to be involved in the real politics, which, which is still a very much a male-dominated area?
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So um, I think at this time um, the way in which women were involved in politics was in social politics. Mm. Um, So that's um, been defined by scholars as the management of people and social situations for political ends. Um, So in my book I argue that enlarging our understanding of politics to include travel and souvenirs Um, and social politics, we can see that women were significant political actors, um, albeit on a social stage rather than a parliamentary one. Um, So Napoleon demonstrates this very well. Um, The outbreak of the French Revolutionary Wars in 1793 made British travel to Europe quite difficult, um, if not impossible. Um, But there was the Treaty of Paris in 1815 um, when travel opened up again briefly. Um, So many scholars have considered this period the natural conclusion of the Grand Tour, Um, but um, I'd say that travel was still happening at this time um, and during this short um, break in hostilities, um, tourists from Britain and France raced across the Channel eager to see the sights of the revolution and to catch a glimpse of Napoleon. Um, two travellers in my book, Catherine Wilmot and Lady Elizabeth Holland again, um, used Napoleonic keepsakes during and after their travels to Paris um, to express their differing um, political opinions. Um, So in September 1802, Lord and Lady Holland joined um, Lord Holland's uncle, the Whig leader, Charles James Fox, to be presented to Napoleon. Uh, Elizabeth's first impressions were unflattering, um, and she described Napoleon as out of proportion, severe and unbending. Owing to her family's politics, the two developed over years a friendly affection, however. So later in Florence, Elizabeth would commission a bust from um, Napoleon's favourite sculptor, Antonio Canova, um, which she placed in what became known as her Napoleon Garden at Holland House. And after Napoleon's imprisonment and exile, Elizabeth and he traded numerous gifts, including thousands of books, seeds, minerals, keepsakes, and a machine to make ice. Um, this culminated after Napoleon's death with, with his bequest of an ornamental snuffbox that he himself had been gifted um, by the Pope. A gift-giving of this nature was clearly political rather than just personal. Uh, as it was public knowledge to the point that other members of London's gentility would argue about it in poems written to newspapers. Lord Carlyle begged Lady Elizabeth Holland to reject the gift, tis tinged with gore, while Lord Byron encouraged her, suggesting that she ignore seven stanzas written by a bore. Ten months before Elizabeth, the Irish woman Catherine Wilmot undertook a tour of France and Italy. Catherine was from a wealthy and influential Anglo-Irish family. During the trip, she met Napoleon also and made friends with the famed Austrian painter Angelica Kaufmann, and she also had an audience with the Pope. Catherine's account of her stay in Paris shows us how ubiquitous Napoleon's image had already become through his savvy French propaganda not only in the form of grand paintings and statues, but also in the form of plaster busts, miniature portraits and medallions and even accessories and foodstuffs. She wrote, we have not seen seen Bonaparte yet, but his image in plaster of Paris reigns the the monarch over every gingerbread stall and you cannot buy a bit of barley sugar to cure your cold without having le premier consul's head in all its heroic laurels, sent down your throat, doing the ignominious job of a sweep chimney. (laughs) So true is it that pushed beyond certain bounds, compliment becomes insult. So further examples of her political views, quite um, different to Lady Elizabeth Hollands, can be found in her also describing um, the remarkably Describing Napoleon as remarkably small um, and also the Napoleon Museum, um, now the Louvre, um, as a thousand pities, um, because that was where, you know, a lot of the antiquities that had formed the centre of the Grand Tour um, had been um, moved to.
1: And uh, as a final question, when, whenever I talk to historians, I like to bring the topic back to the present time. It's uh, you talk about women travels and how this culture souvenir enabled them, afforded them a level of agency. And now, the dynamics of travel has changed significantly in modern times. Uh, so i'm I'm kind of interested to see how do you do you see a shift or how do you see the relation between? The way women experience travel and the material culture of the time we're present uh, when women travel around or, or, or travel around the world. Uh, maybe people don't go on a grand tour anymore, but I guess even in, in we live in Australia, it's sort of I I'm, I could be mistaken. As I'm not Australian, but I've seen it a lot that a lot of young people after they graduate from university they take a two months tour of Europe because Australia is so far away from Europe. I guess. Uh, So I'm kind of interested to know how you see these dynamics of women's travel and experiencing with the material culture in present time, how similar or different it is. And I know it's a terribly broad and general question
0: yeah um i think it is one that obviously does spring to mind though like as you're yeah. doing this historic research um like how does it connect to the practices that we have today um so yeah certainly in australia there's the practice of having a um gap year which can i have drawn many parallels between that <laughs> and the um grand tour um, and I think uh, shaping our memories of our travel experiences through the objects we take home wow. um, is obviously a practice that we also continue today. Um, the tacky souvenirs that we purchase are sometimes made very far from the site we are visiting now um, using materials from across the globe. Um, and we recognise this and, um, you know, purchase them with a sense of irony or choose not to purchase them because we, um, you know, disagree um, with this practice. Um, Meanwhile, we place higher importance and a price tag on items that are handcrafted locally. Mm -hmm. Um, Much of the souvenir culture has also gone online. Um, So instead of having grand tour portraits painted, wearing the latest fashions of the location we're visited, we take selfies um, instead of purchasing Canalettos, um, Venetian landscapes, or painting watercolour views with a clawed glass, um, which was a device used in the 18th century, a Perspex Mirror um, that was designed to soften um, and um, the landscape and give it a rose tint. Um, we use Instagram. Um, and the online photograph really now serves as our material proof um, and our online accounts as our travel journals. Mm um but ultimately my book raises a challenge to scholarship that has framed the travel souvenir as an object that creates inauthentic and manufactured feeling divorced from the means of production um, which is how the souvenir has been um, theorized Mm. Um, i argue that the growing desire in the 19th century to give receive collect and market travel keepsakes resulted from the actions of the women tourists of the preceding decades who preferred the small and personal to represent the value of travel rather than the large. They led to a shift whereby the objects brought home from one's travels or given to others shifted from having a public significance to a more personal significance and the term souvenir shifted from a concept to an object. Um, consumer and tourism studies um, that I've had a bit of a look at today um, seem to consistently find that women tend to purchase souvenirs more frequently than men. Um, and they also place more importance on the role of the souvenir as an aid memoir. Um And this is often attributed to some kind of intrinsic difference between the male and female experience without recognition that this behaviour has actually been socially and culturally constructed um, for over two centuries. Uh, So my work shows that women tourists did not simply return from their travels to resume their previous lives. They brought objects back as a means of using their empowering travel experiences to build upon the power that they already wielded in the social and domestic realm. Um, And, yeah, I think the same um, is true to an extent today um, and that needs to be recognised.
1: Uh, Dr. Emma Glidhill, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us about your wonderful research on New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me. it um, yeah, been wonderful.